0: Well, there's, a, there's an old saying uh, which has been attributed to a dozen or so different people throughout history. It goes a little something like this. It says, there's a place for everything and everything in its place. And perhaps some of you have heard this before. Maybe it was the, the mantra of tidiness in your home growing up, a small reminder to put your clothes back in the hamper or, uh, you know, take your, uh, take your shoes out of the hall and put them where they belong or uh, to put your dirty dishes in the kitchen sink when you were done with them. And my mother would have very much enjoyed that to be the truth in, in our house growing up. I even seem to remember her trying to make it the, the gold standard. But uh, with three kids and countless pets and both parents working and the fact that our home was often the staging or the gathering area for things like camping or scouting or book clubs or band camp lunches, sleepovers, church youth group hijinks, and, and any other of 100 activities that, that our home seemed to go through, uh, things could get a little chaotic and uh, the home a little out of control. And we did our best. And when my brother, sister, and I managed to keep up on our chores, you could usually find at least one room in the house that was free of dirty socks or had at least been dusted or an attempted to be dusted. And, uh, you know, the craziness was just part of growing up in in the Krager family home, and I wouldn't change my home or my family for anything. But I will have to confess that a place for everything and everything in its place turned out to be a whole lot more like everything is in a place, and I wonder now if I can find it. And sometimes I think when life gets a little chaotic and, and things get out of control and they don't go the way that we had hoped they would, that, that our faith can sometimes feel like that. That we look at it and we're like, well, I know I had it, had it somewhere. I believed in something. I just wonder where all that has gone. We're going along and we're enjoying our relationship with Christ and we're really feeling like everything's going pretty well. And then something unexpected happens, a, a tragedy or an unexpected challenge. And, and we're kind of, we're tossed, for, you know, we're thrown for a loop and, and things get a little bit lost and, and we get a little confused and we're not really sure our faith was where we thought it was or where we feel like it's supposed to be. We had thought it was firmly fixed on Jesus. We were going great. That, that really felt like where we were. And then things get tough and we start to, to slip a little bit. And we, we doubt our trust and our abilities and our confidence that we had in ourselves. Over the summer, we've been studying the Gospels in order to learn more about what it means to grow in our faith, to really grow in our confidence and our trust of God. And last week, we looked at Luke chapter 7, and we are, we are encouraged to pursue a life of great faith. Jesus really does want us to live a life of, of great and abundant faith in him and confidence and trust. This week, we're going to look at what happens when we try to have great faith, uh, but it doesn't really go the way that we had hoped for. We'll read about a time when the followers of Jesus were given an opportunity to express their confidence in Jesus, but instead they revealed that maybe their faith wasn't in him alone and perhaps was a little bit too much in themselves. We'll see that sometimes Jesus has to show us uh, where our confidence has drifted away, where we've substituted some things for our trust in him. That sometimes, in order to help us grow in our faith, Jesus has to expose where it's been misplaced. Our passage today begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 22. If you brought your Bibles, you're more than welcome to join us there. It'll also be projected on the screen behind us. Luke 8, uh, verse 22 starts like this. One day, Jesus got in a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger. So having spent several weeks teaching around uh, the city of Capernaum, Jesus tells his disciples that it's time to pack everything up. They're going to move on to their next destination across the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was a body of water that most of these disciples would have known uh, quite well. Peter, James, and John had actually all grown up making a living uh, fishing off the 13-mile-long coasts of this, uh, of this little inland sea. And really navigating it would have been second nature to most of them. A lot of these guys were, were seasoned fishermen, so being out on the water was, was no problem for them. And considering everything that they had recently heard and seen Jesus do and everything they were being asked to, to, to believe and the adjustments they were making to, to what they knew about God, maybe a day on the lake, kind of back in their comfort zone, something that they were used to was, was just what they needed to kind of, kind of re, regroup and, uh, you know, and, and kind of fall into something that, that they knew that they were good at. So they probably didn't give it a second thought when Jesus uh, got on the boat and immediately fell asleep. Uh, maybe they didn't, weren't even all that concerned when the winds began to pick up and the waters got a little choppy. Uh, However, the winds quickly grew stronger stronger, and their situation a whole lot more dire. The disciples, skilled as they were upon the waters, were no match uh, for the storm that broke out over the lake. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell this same story, and they describe this as a great storm with waves crashing against the side of the boat and the boat quickly swamping and beginning to sink. And and quickly, really, the disciples only knew one thing for sure, and that was that that the boat was going to sink and everyone was going to die. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important that we, we look at a couple of questions. And the first one is, whose idea was it to cross the lake? The very first detail Luke is sure to put in the story is that the only reason the disciples are on the lake that day, the only reason that they're trying to cross it, is because it's exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. The next questions get to the heart of what I think might be going on here. And it's that, did Jesus know that the storm was coming and could he have stopped it before it arrived? Now, the passage doesn't tell us, give us answers to those questions, but the rest of Scripture speaks pretty clearly to the idea that, that there's not a whole lot of chance that Jesus didn't know what the weather was going to be that day, and that he certainly wasn't powerless to stop it, as we'll see in just a moment. This man, Jesus, is, is a man for whom the world holds no secrets. He knows the minds of men and women before they speak. He's able to tell the disciples exactly when they're going to betray him and how they're going to abandon him in his, uh, in his most desperate hour. And he's able to accurately predict not only his own death, but his resurrection as well. Furthermore, Scripture is is full of praise for Jesus as the Lord over all creation. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that it is by Jesus that all things were created. And it is by him as well that all things are sustained. In Psalm 135, it leaves no doubt as to the power and the authority the Son of God has over the earth. Beginning in verse 5, it says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all God's. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is that makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So I would argue that the disciples are exactly where Jesus wants them to be, in the middle of a storm that has the ability to take their lives. Why would Jesus do something like this? I think it's because at times, in order to expose our misplaced faith, he has to lead us into circumstances that are beyond our control. The Bible speaks of this as a time of testing, the purpose of which is to strengthen our trust in the Lord and to know that we really can rely on God when things seem to be getting out of hand. In James chapter 1, we kind of find the go-to passage for understanding the, the purpose behind testing. And there James wrote, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, "'when you meet trials of various kinds. "'For you know that the testing of your faith "'produces steadfastness, "'and let steadfastness have its full effect.'" that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. The setting for spiritual growth is often in situations and circumstances that feel uncomfortable, that make us a little unsure, and maybe even leave us feeling a little helpless and overwhelmed. It is in these moments that we really get an opportunity to discover if our faith is truly and fully in God and God alone, or whether or not it might be a little divided, and and we may have some things that we're running to before we go to help with God. See, the testing of our faith is never easy, but the results are usually either a tremendous growth in our love and appreciation for the Lord, or a realization that we've got a little bit of work to do, and we've got to adjust some of the places that we've placed our trust. I agree with what author Mark Sayers once wrote when reflecting on the purpose of trials and challenges. He said, in the storm, God shreds you of those parts that battle him. Those who avoid God's holy storms fail to feel their pain, but they also fail to grow. So I think what the disciples are experiencing on the Sea of Galilee is a test of their faith. And in just a moment, we're going to see how they fare and and see what happens within the story. But before we move on, I I do want to make a a quick clarifying point. Uh, Last week, Pastor Steve taught and and reminded us that uh, trials and tests are not always uh, an example of a lack of faith. They don't always point to a lack of faith. And in the same way, trials and tests shouldn't always be thought of as something sent by God in order to test us. Sometimes the pain and the sickness and the loss and persecution that we feel are just the realities of what it means to live in a world that's still plagued by sin and in desperate need of Christ's return. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at a passage that will help us understand the role of faith and suffering and that sometimes really when we're going through that, it's really about perseverance and endurance instead of our our need to mature and grow. Today, I do want to look at this passage, however, in, in the, with the lens of wondering, when we're tested, what opportunities might we have to grow? What opportunities might we need to be looking at in order to, to expand our faith and increase our trust in the Lord and realize where we may have placed our faith in something other than him? So as we return to, the, as we return to this passage, we pick back up from where we left the disciples, getting beaten and battered by this storm. And, and remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe this as a, a tremendous and violent event. It may not have reached, like, Sharknado proportions, but in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the storm is described as seismos, which is a Greek word meaning earthquake, and it's often used in apocalyptic literature. So basically what the disciples are, are seeing here is that the wind is so bad and the waves are so bad, the storm is so huge, and literally the earth is shaking around them, so much so that they feel like they're looking at the end of the, end of the world. I'd imagine that just about anybody caught in this would, would have some fear, and rightly so, and uh, w- you know, would be caught up in the fear of this event, anyone that is other than Jesus, who apparently had no problem peacefully and uh, blissfully snoozing his way through the entire event. Eventually, someone realizes that maybe it'd be a really good idea to wake Jesus up and tell him that while it's been really great being his disciple and all, um, if he could help them right now, that, that, would, really, that would really be uh, something that, that they, would, they would love. So as we return to Luke chapter 8, verse 24, we read, And they went to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind And the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Now, I don't know about you, but where is your faith is not exactly the first thing I would have wanted to hear from Jesus, having just experienced something like that. I'd expect to hear something maybe more like, hey guys, uh, sorry about that suggestion to be out on the water. I guess that wasn't a really great idea. Or, man, I can't believe I almost slept through that. Thank you so much for waking me up. The the self-centered and self-concerned parts of me would expect at least a little camaraderie, if not a little accountability from Jesus for having put me in such danger like that. But I think that question, where is your faith, is the very thing that helps us understand the real value of moments like these. It's Jesus inviting us to consider whether our responses to to these trials reveal that that what we believe may have been a little misplaced, that our faith may be in something other than him and him alone. So where is the faith of the disciples? Is Is it in Jesus? I'd like to suggest that I think that the disciples certainly had some faith in Jesus. They do get some partial credit for going to him. But it wasn't exactly exclusive, and when, when put to the test, I think it, it's revealed that they were also believing a little bit in themselves before they wanted to believe that Jesus could help. And any time we believe in oursel- ourselves first, what tends to happen is by the time we're ready to, to go run to Jesus, we're doing so in fear and in panic and in a desperate need to realign ourselves and our trust fully on Jesus alone. See, all three accounts of the Gospels agree that when the boat began to fill up with water and only after the boat began to fill up with water did the disciples run and ask Jesus for help. And taking a look at exactly what they said can really help us understand kind of their heart and their, and their, uh, their disposition in this event. In Matthew, it says, and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, for we are perishing. In the Gospel of Mark, it records that Jesus was sleeping at the stern uh, on a cushion and they woke him and said, teacher, do you not even care that we are perishing? And as we've already read in Luke, uh, he describes the disciples rousing Jesus with a frustrated and desperate report of their impending doom. Master, master, we are perishing. See, the disciples did the right thing by running to Jesus, but their divided and misplaced faith was revealed in how long they waited and how by the time they finally went to him it was with accusation and the assumption that they were all about to die. You see, in that moment, in their minds and in their hearts, it no no longer mattered to them that they were traveling with Jesus that this was the man that they had seen do incredible miracles and that they knew him, by him and him alone, did he have the power of God to change things in people's lives. But they'd waited so long until that last moment to run to him. And when they finally did, they had fear and bitterness in their hearts so much so that they could look at him and say, Jesus, don't you even care about us? Don't you even care that we're, we're perishing here, that we're all about to drown and die? And then finally, Jesus speaks. The Lord of all creation stands up on the boat, being tossed by the wind and the waves, and commands them to be still. And everything immediately stops. Calm waters and glass seas. As the disciples looked out over the lake, dumbfounded by what they just witnessed, Jesus speaks again and asks them, Where is your faith? You're you're, you're traveling with me. Why, when you're with me, would you assume that you're in that kind of danger? I am right here with you, and and you know that I care for you, don't you? Well, like I said earlier, I think it's reasonable for the disciples to have some fear in in this moment. A lot of times our trials and our storms bring us face-to-face with those things that remind us of, of our mortality and our limitations. But time and time again, what Jesus tries to help us understand that our confidence doesn't have to come from how bravely or how courageously we face these things on our own. Our faith is not about us. It's about him. He is strong and he is limitless. And as long as our faith is fully placed in him, it's never in the wrong place. But I think the story helps us see just how hard it is to really let go of our confidence in ourselves and and let it be in Jesus alone. See, as the storm gets more serious and the disciples begin to to kind of show that they had a little bit of a fair weather faith, a a little bit of a a limitation in how much they wanted to trust Jesus. They had been traveling with him for a long time. Things have been going really great. They've been seeing amazing things. They love learning from him. But then the storm pops up and everything kind of goes crazy and they retreat back into what they know to be true of themselves and their own abilities. Again, most of these men were experienced fishermen and sailors. And maybe as the storm started to pick up, they thought, you know what? I've got this. I I don't need to wake Jesus. I don't need to bother him with this. I can can do this on my own. Let me show Jesus what I'm capable of. So that, you know, when, when he kind of wakes up, he sees that we can handle this and it's no big deal. I don't need to go to him. Have you ever said anything like that before? I feel like sometimes I tell Jesus stuff like that daily. I get wrapped up in my strength and my experience and my discipline and my discipleship and my faith, and soon enough, I'm so focused on me and what I can do, and I've forgotten to look at Jesus and what he can do. That day on the water and in the storm, the disciples learned a very humbling and powerful truth. You were never meant to be your own savior. None of us was ever meant to be our own savior. You can't do it. You're not capable of it, and that's okay. The most common way that we misplace our faith is when we take it from Jesus and put it in ourselves. When that happens, it might work for a little while. Things might be okay for a little while, and we may be so proud of what we're able to show Jesus and be like, look at what I can do. Look at everything I can do. But then when things get ugly and things get really hard, it all starts to slip away. A question that we can ask ourselves to help us understand whether or not we, we've misplaced some of our, our faith is this. What do you sometimes put your confidence in before Jesus? When things get tough, where do you first and most frequently turn? I thought a lot about this as I prepared to preach this week, and, and I kind of determined the top three places that, that I run to before Jesus, before I cry out to him, before, before I pray to him, as things get crazy. I often go to these places. I I go to my education. I go to my relationships. And honestly, a lot of times I I go to my money or the resources that that I've accumulated. I think, I I try to ask myself, what do I know? What do I know? What what have I experienced that I know can get me through this situation? Or what relationships do I have? Who do I know that might be able to coach me through this? Or, Or what resources do I have? What money do I have? What have I accumulated that I can rely upon to see me through this challenge? And only after exhausting that list, Do I finally run to Jesus? But the problem is, when I do that, my heart is not all that unlike the heart of the disciples. And by the time that I'm going to Him, I'm not going with with joy and I'm not going with expectation. I'm going with fear and frustration and saying, "Jesus, I'm I'm dying here. I'm perishing. Don't don't you even care about my struggle?" And when this happens, I wonder if sometimes Jesus doesn't look at me the same way that He looked at the disciples and ask, "Where is your faith? I have everything you need, and take great joy in giving it to you freely." why didn't you come to me sooner? Why is it so hard for us to go to Jesus sooner? Don't wait for the boat to fill with water. Don't try and think your way out or pay your way out or or navigate your own way out of these difficult circumstances. Run to the one who has promised to care for you no matter what. Your faith is safe in him. He cannot fail fail you and he'll never let you down. Throughout scripture, one of the most frequently repeated promises is, be not afraid, for I will never leave you or forsake you. I'd heard once that that's in there like 365 times. I don't actually think that's true. I think someone just really wanted that to be true. Uh, But it is in there like over 150 times, which is a pretty good rate in and of itself. And, And truth be told, I am always afraid when I rely upon myself. Maybe not, maybe not immediately, maybe not at the beginning. I might kind of start to feel good and I, I get a lot of confidence in seeing myself do things. But as, as things get harder and I start to examine what's going on and I realize who's calling the shots and I realize, oh, oh no, it's me, uh, my anxiety and my stress and my fear start to take over. But all of those drop dramatically when I'm able to slow down and answer the question, where is my faith? By saying, Jesus, my faith really is in you. Take a moment to think about a difficulty you've faced either recently or, 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 uh, or maybe something you're going through right now and ask yourself that question, where is my faith? And imagine the peace you might feel or, or the, the way that you might be able to go th- get through that situation if you really can respond, Jesus, my faith is in you. Now, your trial isn't likely to be a, a literal storm. It's probably going to be a whole lot more personal than that. Perhaps it's a severe illness or a job loss or an unexpected breakdown in a relationship. Christ's promise to you is, is that you are not without his care or his love and that you're not going to go through any of this alone. Jesus certainly wants to see you place all of your faith in him. That's, that's the goal. That's where we all want to get to. But the other great thing about this passage is that he understands when we're not quite there and he doesn't abandon us in that moment. See, the disciples kind of proved to, proved to Jesus that they didn't quite understand what it meant to be, to, to be totally trusting him. Maybe they relied a little bit too, too much on themselves. But Jesus doesn't just like get out of the boat, walk across the water and leave them to sink. Nor does he stop the storm and look at them be like, you know what? When we put into port, I'm done with you guys. He stays with them. The, the story in the gospels goes on and the disciples continue to travel and learn from Jesus even after they've shown that they've got some growing to do. He didn't abandon them and he won't abandon you either. When reflecting on how trials uh, and when reflecting on how Jesus stands with us in the midst of trials, author uh, David Platt said this. Faith is not the confidence that trials won't come your way. Faith is the confidence that no matter what wind and waves come your way in this world, the God of the universe will be right there in the boat with you. His power and presence will see you through. Christian, you are not alone and ultimately you are safe in the presence of the one who has ultimate authority over disaster. If you're going to walk away with anything this morning, I pray that you walk away cherishing and praising God for this. Your faith, even when it's shown to be a little lacking, even when it's exposed to be a little misplaced, is still safe as long as it is ultimately in the love and the authority of Jesus Christ. So I challenge you this week to, to take some time to either think of some difficulty that you're currently in or maybe something you've recently experienced And in your bulletin, there's a couple of questions. And this week during, you know, your time with the Lord or just, you know, as you're driving or something, try to process these questions. Do I trust in Jesus and his promises to care for me, even in my time of difficulty? Have I brought my circumstances before him in prayer? And if not, what might be holding me back? Is there any way that I am dividing my faith between trusting Jesus and trusting myself? And what do I know to be true of Jesus that is greater than anything else I might trust in this situation instead of him? I encourage you all to spend time with God in prayer and in the word considering these questions this week and seeking to answer the question, where is my faith? With an incredibly blessed statement, Jesus, my faith really and truly is in you. Remember always that your faith has a place and that it's in Christ, in Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I, I thank you for your great faithfulness and for your love that you shared with us even when we struggle to, uh, to trust you. Forgive us in our moments of doubt and fear and, and comfort us and remind us that in those moments, Lord, that you never abandon us. May our faith always and ultimately be found in you and you alone. Please, Lord, make this increasingly true every day of our lives. In your holy name we pray, amen.